What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? 1-833-288-EWTN. I don't understand why I have to earn salvation. 1-833-288-3986. Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? What's stopping you? This is Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. A tremendous Thursday to each and every one of you. Welcome to a Thursday edition of EWTN's Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders. I'm Jack Williams sitting in today for Tom Price. Happy birthday to Tom Price. We're, we're giving Tom, as we do everybody, his birthday off. So congratulations to him on surviving these 39 years that he's been on planet Earth, or yeah, roughly 39 years. Happy Give birthday her. to you, Tom. We don't have the music rights to that song. I'm sorry. Oh, sorry. I didn't sing it. <laughs> that wasn't right. me. I'm not here. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. We ask that question every day. What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, we'd still love to hear from you. That number is one two zero five two seven one two nine eight five. And we will even put you straight to the front of the line at one two zero five two seven one two nine eight five. And you can always send us an email, ctc at ewtn.com. Charles Beery producing the program. Your call screener is Matt Gubensky and Jeff Burson handling our social media efforts. So if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window and it may find its way to us by the end of the program. And our host, the aforementioned Dr. David Anders, how are you? Jack, I'm fine, thanks. How about you? Terrific, thank you. I have an email here from Matt, and he says, not Matt, our call screener, but a different Matt. Okay. I have a friend who was raised Missouri Synod Lutheran, and in heated discussion, he told me that Jesus said not to pray to him, but to the Father alone. I read the New Testament several times. Have I missed that passage, or is he taking something out of context? Uh, well, he's, he's not taking something out of context. He's not taking anything out of Scripture. There's no place in the Bible where Jesus deflects prayer to his person. He never says, don't pray to me. Not in there. Not in the Bible. That's easy. That's easy. Um, next up is um, Dominic. And Dominic says, in a past episode, you addressed that the Catholic Church isn't quote-unquote legalistic. I agree, but there's a perception that some aspired virtues of the face come across as legalistic. My question is, if you have mortally sinned, for instance, missing a holy day of obligation, self-abuse, etc., is it possible to go cold turkey and immediately change your behavior, behavior and habits Privately ask God for forgiveness through prayer and action and not have to go to confession? Are there any personal stipulations that one can apply to themselves if they hold true? I'm not sure I understand the last part of the question. Are there any stipulations you can apply to oneself if they hold true? I don't understand that question, but I can answer the rest of it. Um, so so uh, the Church's teaching is that a person who is perfectly contrite for their sins, can be forgiven by God, reconciled to God, and go to heaven, even in the absence of, of, uh, of sacramental confession. 
And so that, that a lot of people could fall into that category. First of all, let's take all non-Catholics. All non-Catholics who don't have access to the tribunal of the Church's mercy, namely the confessional, their, their only way of reconciliation with God is through an act of perfect contrition. And they're not penalized by God for not having access to the confessional. So that, of course, is possible. Um, and, of course, it's also possible for a Catholic to be reconciled to God through an act of perfect contrition, and I hope that we all do that. So if you find yourself in mortal sin ever, um, and uh, let's say confession is six days away or, or longer, uh, by all means, make an act of perfect contrition. Get right with God right now. And so if that's the case, you might ask, well, then, then why the confessional? What does the confessional add if I can be right with God through perfect contrition? It adds several things. Like all the sacraments, uh, confession is a tangible, sensible sign. I can see it. I can hear it. I can touch the priest in front of me if I'm not separated by a screen. It's tangible. And there's a promise that Christ gives to this tangible sign that grace is on offer to forgive my sins. And so you can, you can receive grace outside the sacraments, but when you receive grace inside the sacraments, you have objective certainty that grace has been extended to you. Um, so, you know, let's say I ask God to forgive me outside the context of the confessional. I, you know, I'm not hearing a voice back from heaven, heaven saying, it's okay, Dave, you know, I got this, you're all good. I'm making an act of faith, but I don't, I don't have any sort of tangible response from God. In the confessional, I do. And so St. Thomas Aquinas says that the reason God gives us the sacraments is so that we can have that tangible sign, that we, it, it, there's a psychological component to it, the, the, the assurance and the confidence that it gives to the soul to have a, to have a, a point of reference, in re, in, a sensible point of reference, to which I can attach the offer of grace gives me confidence in my moral life and my spiritual life. So like all sacraments, confessional has that benefit. And let me tell you something, that's real. That is real. I grew up uh, outside the Catholic Church, lived you know, 30-plus years without the sacrament of confession, I did have access to perfect contrition. I would pray and ask God to forgive my sins. The difference between that and hearing back from God's representative who said, in the name of the Church, I absolve you of your sins in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The, subjectively, the difference in my spiritual life was profound. So it really does make a difference in how you conduct yourself in life. There's some other benefits of the confessional. One of them is that to be validly absolved, I need to make a genuine examination of conscience. So I can't just—I'm not just offering up a prayer for, you know, whatever the latest guilt trip is. But I'm genuinely trying to assess all of the aspects of my life according to the Church's rule of faith uh, and, uh, and make an honest assessment of myself to another human being. That, that process is really beneficial morally and spiritually, uh, and both because I'm really taking an account of where I am in life, it, and also it's, it's, uh, it induces humility. I mean, it's kind of embarrassing to go tell some other human being what you've done wrong. And, you know, swallowing your pride and moving is kind of ground zero for making progress in life. If you can't admit your fault, really take ownership of what you've done wrong, you're really not going to move ahead. Uh, there are other benefits to the confessional that we could get to after the break, or if we get some really neat calls in the meanwhile, we might not get to. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. It's EWTN's call to communion with Dr. David Anders.
It's Thursday. That means the world over with Raymond Arroyo. Be sure to check it out tonight, 8 p.m. Eastern time, right here on EWTN Radio and Television. To the phones we go. First up today is Maureen in Kissimmee, Florida, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Maureen, you're on with Dr. David Anders. Hi, thank you. Um, I, With yesterday being the Feast of St. Anne, uh, it got me to wondering. I remember hearing on either your show or Father Paquas that Jesus was not born of the traditional method to Mary so that she could retain her virginity. But since Mary was born without sin... Is there a similar theory as to um, Mary's birth to St. Anne? Right, yeah, I appreciate the question. <clears throat> well, so the, uh, the conception of Mary in terms of the physical generation uh, was not a, it wasn't a virginal conception. Mary had a human father, um, and so the, the rest of the parturition would have proceeded normally. The only thing really unusual about Mary's conception was uh, in the spiritual realm— namely that she didn't incur the debt of original sin, that she was infused with sanctifying grace from the moment of her conception. Uh, but of course, that didn't interfere in any way with normal biological processes. And that infusion of grace we refer to as the Immaculate Conception. Does that help, Maureen? Yes, thank you. Thank you. You're very welcome. We appreciate the phone call. That frees up a line for you at 833-288-EWTN. Pick up the phone and give us a call at 833-288-3986. Raycel and Rose write in. These are two sisters from the Philippines, Dr. Anders. They want to know if God is a mass murderer. We say he killed lots of people after several warnings through the prophets and during Noah's time. However, in the end, he had to kill them as a last choice. He also fought wars for Israel, during which he didn't spare anyone, even the women and children. His commandments say, thou shalt not kill. Could God be breaking his own law? Thanks. We love the show. Yeah, thank you. So I think there's a problem in the premise. Here's the premise, that, as I understand it, that some people die of natural causes, and some people die through the providence of God. That seems to be the way the thing is constructed, that you can either die at God's hand or you die in some other way. And the truth of the fact is that Catholic doctrine is that God superintends literally everything in history. Jesus says not a sparrow falls apart from the will of God. So, you know, if you're going to implicate God, you can't just—the the indictment can't just include— uh, uh, the death of sinners in the Old Testament, you'd have to include literally every human being who's ever died on planet Earth, because all of that falls within the scope of divine providence. And and in in that regard, no, God is not morally culpable for some wrong against the human person because individuals die, because individuals are mortal, however they die, whether they die at the hands of men or lightning bolts or earthquakes or car accidents or cancer or what have you. God's not morally at fault um, uh, in those in those kinds of actions. No, no more so is he morally at fault for the deaths recounted in the Old Testament. 833-288-EWTN, that's our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Desiree in Texas writes in, My 19-year-old niece wants to move in with her boyfriend. I said you have to be married first. I also told her I waited to move in until I was married at her age. 
However, she still wants to move in with him. I told her it's a big sin. She doesn't understand because her mom was agnostic. Please help with Bible verses and whatever else. I told her I would tell her in the Bible where it talks about this. Um, yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So, you know, cohabitation before marriage is a bad idea on so many counts. Um, and Scripture does condemn fornication and all manners of sexual immorality, and St. Paul's epistles are, are full of uh, these admonitions. Um, but it's also just it's just against the good of the human person, um, even apart from biblical revelation. Um, when, we, when we separate human sexuality from the commitment of, of marriage, persons are hurt, relationships are strained, uh, families are broken, children are wounded. And I would recommend the book Cheap Sex by Mark Regnera, sociologist out of Texas, uh, who catalogs the chaos and the pain that has devolved upon especially women since uh, 1968-ish, you know, since the advent of uh, artificial contraception and the, the culture of free sex it's, uh, and the sexual liberation movement of the 60s, that culture that's sort of taken hold in the modern world and the devastating consequences uh, socially and personally and especially for women, especially for women. Um, so uh, it's just, uh, it, and, and the rates of divorce, if you cohabit before marriage, you are vastly, vastly more likely to divorce than, uh, than couples that wait. And, you know, a lot of people want to know, well, what's the difference? I mean, married people live under the same roof. Not yet married people live under the same roof. They engage in the same kind of activities. You know, they have the same kind of affection, seemingly. And uh, I, I don't, it, to me, it's odd that they don't grasp the glaring difference. Here's the glaring difference. One relationship says, um, I, I will pledge myself to you in sickness and health, rich or poor, better or worse, till death do us both part. I will, I will give myself to you, total self-donation, no matter what comes, and I promise to never leave you. And so if we have children together, uh, I'm 100% in, and I'm completely committed to the welfare of you, my spouse, and of our children together and the family that we've created. The other kind of relationship says, yeah, I'd like to have all that intimacy, but I promise you nothing. I make no assurances. I, I'm, I'm, I will not promise to be there forever for you. And I may get out of here tomorrow. And if you get pregnant, um, I, may not, I may not be around to help you with this life that, you, that we've brought into the world. I'm not accepting responsibility. Now, how you can't see, or how the, uh, someone can't see, those are radically different dispositions regarding the meaning of the sexual act and, and what you're getting yourself into. And you're, you're setting yourself up for massive pain, massive disappointment, uh, and, uh, and it's a bad idea. 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number. It's a free phone call anywhere in North America. <clears throat> a couple of open lines and plenty of time for your calls at 833-288-3986. Greg is a first-time caller in Portsmouth, Ohio, listening on St. Gabriel Radio. Greg, thanks so, so much for holding. Welcome to the program. Thank you. I, I have a question. Why do you guys believe that priests can partake us from the chalice when other people can't partake us from it because of COVID? Because it is not the communion if the other people can't partake us themselves. 
Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So the, the premise of the question, first of all, is that it's not a valid communion unless everyone in the church partakes of both species, both kinds. And my question would be, so uh, who says? Christ never taught that. The apostles never taught that. There's absolutely nothing in sacred scripture, divine revelation, that says that all valid communions uh, must include uh, uh, communion of both kinds for everyone in the church. Nothing in Revelation says that. And uh, Christ, uh, in fact, you know, the Bible says very little, in fact, about the actual proper procedure for going to communion. I'll give you an example. Nowhere in sacred scripture, this is a different topic, but just to illustrate, nowhere in sacred scripture does it say that women can receive communion at all. No mention of women ever receiving Holy Communion in Scripture. Now, as Catholics, we, we're all about giving communion to women. But if we were restricted to the words of Scripture, well, you know, no no testimony of that in the Bible. You'd have to restrain, withhold communion from women, because the Bible doesn't say to give it to them. It doesn't forbid it, but it doesn't show us it happening, right? The rubrics for communion are just not spelled out in the Bible at all. So we are left to a certain extent to sacred tradition, how the Church has always celebrated Holy Communion from the very beginning, and what it means to the Church. And, and why are there two kinds? Why is there bread and wine? Why not just bread? Why not just wine? What's the point? Why have two? And when you think about it, and you look at the Bible and tradition, what you learn is the reason for having two kinds. The reason for having bread and wine, and not just bread. It's not so that we can have something to drink with our bread. It's because they represent the body and blood of Christ having been separated. When Christ's body is separate from his blood, it shows forth, memorializes the death of Calvary. That's true whether I go to communion or not. So when I go to Mass, the priest consecrates the Eucharist. Christ's body and blood are really present on the altar. You got the consecrated host over here, the consecrated chalice over there. Even if I don't go to communion, the purpose for the double consecration, the reason for there being both kinds, bread and wine, is, is fulfilled because it's, it's representing the death of Christ. That happens whether or not I commune. Now, what's the point of the communion? The point of the communion is not the representation of Christ's death. The point of communion is that I have a sacramental share in the body of Christ that I am intimate with Jesus, that I, have, that I have entered into communion with him and the church that he founded. Functionally, you can do that by communing in one kind. Like, the, the, a sacrament is both a sign, it's a symbol, and a reality. Both the, the sign, both the symbol of communion in Christ's body and the reality of communion in Christ's body are fulfilled in me if I commune in one kind. Why does the priest always commune in both kinds? Jesus commanded it. When he instituted the sacrament, he said to the apostles, the priests, take, eat, drink. Didn't give that command to everyone, just gave it to the priests. So it's proper for the priest to commune in both kinds. Lady can commune in both kinds, but they're not obligated to. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. It's a free phone call anywhere in North America. 833-288-3986. Next up is Lee in Clarksville, Tennessee, listening on WLCR Radio. Lee, you're on with Dr. David Anders. Dr. David Anderson, I want to thank you for taking my call, first of all. 
And my question is, when Moses went to Pharaoh and told him to let God say, let his people go so they could serve him, why couldn't they serve him where they would? Yeah. Sure, I can answer that. I really appreciate the question. Thank you so much. So the service in question was specifically sacrificial worship. When, when they say we have to go serve our God, what they meant was we have to offer him sacrifices. And God specified the locations where they could offer sacrifices. You must offer sacrifice in this place, not in that place. And that, continues to, that continued to be true of the Hebrews throughout their entire history. There were sites where they could, where, where on those sites only could they legitimately offer sacrifice, and eventually only in the temple in Jerusalem. They couldn't offer sacrifice anyplace else. That's why when the Romans destroyed the temple in 70 AD, Jewish sacrifice ceased forever, because they're not authorized to sacrifice anywhere else other than the temple in Jerusalem. Before the temple was, was, uh, was created, they had to go where God told them. There were a few holy sites in Israel where they could sacrifice, and they could sacrifice in the desert, in the wilderness, when they had the holy holies in the tabernacle. Uh, but they weren't authorized to offer sacrifice in, um, in Egypt. And in that day and age, you know, offering sacrifice was not only a religious but a political act. And the sight of all the Hebrew slaves gathering together and offering sacrifice to a god that wasn't an Egyptian god would have been intolerable to the Egyptians. God bless you, Lee. We appreciate that phone call today. That opens up a line for you at 833-288-EWTN. Quickly, before we go to our break here, um, Jay writes in, Can one receive an indulgence without knowing it? I went to confession last Saturday, received Holy Communion on Sunday, and prayed a rosary at a pilgrimage site in our diocese. The rosary included the Apostles' Creed and for the intentions of the Holy Father. Then I read the handout at the site explaining how to get an indulgence. (laughs) Yeah, just appreciate the question. It's great. So just intend to receive that indulgence. Just if you've met the requirements for an indulgence and you didn't know that there, that there was an indulgence awarded to those behaviors, just say, okay, now I intend to get the indulgence. It's the intent that counts. There, there are certain advantages to serving a God who's outside of time and space, huh? Uh, there are advantages to serving a God outside of time and space. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Again, pick up the phone. Give us a phone call. Straight ahead, we're going to talk to Elaine in Dayton, Ohio, Nick in South Jersey, and we've got plenty of time for your phone calls as well. 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number. It is a free phone call anywhere in North America. 833-288-3986. We've got congratulations going out. To a longtime member of the EWTN radio family, Catholic Radio in South Carolina is celebrating their 20th year with EWTN. They serve Greenville, Spartanburg, Greer, Charleston, and Hilton Head. Congratulations to Michael Brennan and his whole team at Catholic Radio of South Carolina from all of us here at EWTN Radio. Once again, it's EWTN's Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders. We ask that question every day. What is stopping you from becoming a Catholic? We would love to have you answer that for us. The numbers again, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, we'd still love to hear from you. That number is 1-205-271-271. 
and we will even put you straight to the front of the line at 1-205-271-2985. It's EWTN's Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders. Straight back to the phones we go. Elaine is next up. She is a first-time caller in Dayton, Ohio, listening on the Amazon Echo. Elaine, you are on with Dr. David Anders. Thank you so much for taking my call. Most of my very close friends are Protestants. They know the Bible backwards and forwards, and they want to know why Catholics do not believe in the rapture of the Church. Yes, thank you so much. Catholics do not believe in the rapture of the Church because God did not reveal any such thing. There is nothing in divine revelation, Scripture or otherwise, uh, that teaches the Protestant doctrine of the rapture. And I will point out that most Protestants don't believe in the rapture for the same reason. The Protestants who believe in the rapture are a minority among Protestants. They're a loud minority— they're a minority that writes a lot of best-selling books and puts out movies and creates a lot of sensation around the doctrine of the rapture. But numerically, they're a minority of Protestants, and historically, no Protestant believed in this doctrine until the 19th century. No one had ever heard of the doctrine until it was invented by a man named John Nelson Darby. So let's, let's clarify a few points about the so-called rapture. So there is a passage of sacred scripture, 1 Thessalonians 4, 17, when Paul says that we who are alive when the Lord returns will be caught up together with him in the air into the clouds. Now, sometimes rapture enthusiasts will point to this text and a few others to suggest, aha, see, we're going to be caught up out of the air. Well, Catholics don't object to the idea of being caught up in the air. I mean, Scripture says we're going to be caught up in the air. Okay, we're going to get caught up in the air. The question is, when does that happen and what do we do while we're there? And the, the rapture people believe that we will be caught up into the air when Christ comes back secretly. They posit a return of Christ that is nowhere mentioned in the Bible. Jesus came once in the Incarnation. He'll come again at the end of time to institute the general judgment. But the rapture people imagine a third coming between those two, not mentioned in the Bible, when Jesus will come and quote-unquote rapture, quote-unquote true believers, out of time and space, and that's this being caught up in the air as they understand it, and that he will take them to heaven, and they'll wait out a great tribulation poured out on earth, and then return with Christ during his quote-unquote third coming at the end of time for the, for the general judgment and then the eschaton, uh, the thousand-year millennial reign, when Jesus, as they understand him, will reign from Jerusalem over a very physical and very Hebraic Davidic kingdom. Um, but Catholics don't think that's what it means because it doesn't say anything of the sort. Uh, St. Paul says that we'll be caught up with the Lord in the air at the end of time when he comes back for the judgment. And the purpose of being caught up, it's, it's like when a, uh, a king or a prince comes to liberate a city that was besieged. And the city goes out to meet the, the, uh, the king and lead him back in in a triumphal procession. And so since Christ is coming on the clouds of heaven, we'll get caught up, our bodies will be changed and transformed, we'll be caught up into the clouds of heaven and come back with Christ in this triumphal procession 
uh, for the judgment of the living and the dead. So we, we have no problem with the idea of being caught up, because that's biblical. It's, it's what happens when you're caught up, and when does it take place that we object to. And the, the doctrine of the rapture was really constructed to solve a pseudo-problem, right? They didn't, they didn't find the doctrine in the Bible. They invented the doctrine because they had a problem with sacred Scripture. And here was the problem. Fundamentalists tend to read the Bible as if every word were literally true and all with the same sense, all with the same force. So there aren't sort of levels of truth, there aren't nuances, it's, it's just a big instruction manual that God wrote, kind of a puzzle you have to fit together. And there are passages in the Old Testament that speak very clearly about the triumph of Israel in the last days and the coming kingdom of God when Israel would rule over the nations and other nations would bring tribute and gold and silver and camels laden with treasure into Jerusalem, that kind of, that kind of thing. And that obviously didn't happen with the coming of Jesus. Didn't happen with the coming of Jesus. And the church and the New Testament have always regarded those Old Testament passages as more or less figurative, uh, as a poetic way of talking about the glorious kingdom that Christ brought, which was not of this world, not of this world, not the kind that comes with, you know, guns and bullets or swords or camels and gold and silver. But the dispensationalist, recognizing that, okay, the kingdom of Christ is a spiritual kingdom, hey, but we still need those camels, so they, 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 they saw that the picture they had of the Old Testament didn't really fit with the picture they had of the church. And so they said, that's a problem for us if we're going to maintain our very literal view of the Bible. So we've got to figure out a way, so say the dispensationalists, the rapture people, we have to figure out a way to get those camels back in. Aha, here's what we do. Let's get the church out of the way. Let's get the church out of the way. If we get the church out of the way get the spiritual kingdom out of the way, that leaves room for God to do all his conquering with all of his camels and his gold and his silver and all the rest of it. And that's literally where the rapture comes from. It's an attempt to remove the Christian church from history and to make room for the fulfillment of these Old Testament prophecies that are very materialistic. And so it solves, as I put it, a pseudo-problem because the New Testament and the church have never read the Old Testament that way. We've never seen that there's a kind of dichotomy between this material, physicalist Old Testament and this spiritual New Testament. That is a distinctly uh, Protestant dispensational way of reading the Bible. And once you allow the perspective of St. Paul and of Jesus and of the Church Fathers to govern the way you read the Old Testament, the problem goes away, and you don't have to treat the Church as if it were some kind of parenthesis that you have to zap up to heaven to get out of the way. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Thomas is next up. He's in Nashville, Tennessee, listening on iHeartRadio. Thomas, you're on with Dr. Anders. Hey, Dr. Anders. Good to talk to you again, sir. Thank you. Um, I, want, I wanted to ask you about um, um, Muslims and, uh, like, what, I guess, how the Church sees them. And I, I didn't see this until recently, and I guess it came from the, the bishops, um, the United States Conference of Bishops, and it's about, um, I think, 1964, after the Second Council, but it said, but the plan of salvation also includes those who acknowledge the Creator in the first place, among whom are Muslims. They profess the old faith of Abraham, and together with us, they adore the one merciful God. I, I, I always thought like the God of, I guess Islam, I guess the law, was different, like than the God of, of like Christianity. Can you absolutely, that to me? absolutely, yeah? There's a little equivocation going on that creates some some uh, some misunderstanding. Um, if if you look at the philosophical theology 
that Muslims and Christians do. You know, if you ask a Muslim, can you prove the existence of God? Now, some think that you can't, but many, there's a long tradition in Islam of doing, of doing natural philosophy and doing uh, philosophical theology. They will po- point to the same kinds of philosophical proofs, cosmological argument for in, for in particular, that Catholics will point to. In fact, St. Thomas Aquinas, who's the, the great philosopher of the Catholic tradition, was deeply influenced by Islamic philosophy, very learned in Islamic philosophy, and he, and he interacts all the time with Islamic philosophers, and he agrees with them sometimes, he disagrees with them sometimes. He also was very learned in Jewish philosophy, like Maimonides, Moses Maimonides, for example. Thomas knows all these characters, he interacts with them. He thinks they're right about a lot of things. And so if you're, if you're talking about God insofar as God is the first principle, the source and origin of all things that exist— then Catholics and Muslims and Jews uh, can really get down and, and, and have a conversation, a meaningful conversation, philosophically, and come to some very similar conclusions about God and his relationship to the world. Um, they can also agree a, a good deal on the special relationship that that God, however else we might conceive him, has to the person of Abraham, to Moses, and the Jewish people. And, uh, and even with, uh, between Muslims and Christians— they can agree that that uh, Jesus of Nazareth has a special role to play in the outworking of God's history. And they don't hold, hold the same doctrines of Jesus that we do, but they do recognize him as a person who is in that lineage of Abrahamic prophets. So on all those things, we can find agreement. But when it comes to the inner nature of God and, uh, and the fulfillment of his purposes, then there's radical disagreement. And so the, the greatest disagreement between Muslims and Catholics, of course— is that uh, Muslims reject the doctrine of the Trinity, adamantly reject the doctrine of the Trinity. I mean, they're really vehement about it, really vehement about it. And, of course, Catholics confess uh, the Trinity of persons and the Godhead. Um, And so um, it's—here's an analogy for how you might think of the similarities. (coughs) Imagine we're all hanging out at a bar, um, you know, having some um, whatever we're having. Kool-Aid. Kool-Aid. And, uh, and we're waiting on Jack Williams to show up. And, uh, and you and I are standing there, and, and, and we see a fellow, you know, walk into the bar. Maybe his back's turned to us, and he's a kind of a tall guy with a nice head of hair and broad shoulders. And, and I go, oh, look, there's Jack. And then uh, and you go, well, we're both looking out for Jack. I'm not so sure that's Jack. And then the fellow turns around, and lo and behold, it isn't Jack, Right. So we both have a conception in our mind of the jack that we're waiting for and have some of the properties in mind by which we might identify that jack. But when the details begin to emerge, we realize that one of us has got the right picture and one of us is wrong. You know, um, And that's kind of the situation we are with Muslims. So there are some major properties of the Godhead that we can agree on, but when you get down to the specifics, there are some profound differences. And so I personally, I hesitate to say without qualification, Catholics and uh, and uh, Muslims worship the same God. I, I mean, I understand why people do say that, and with the right proper qualifications, I could say that, but in other circumstances, I wouldn't, because, you know, it's not the same Jack, if you will. Um, and uh, there's another major difference between the Muslim idea of God, well, I should mainstream Muslim idea of God. There are fringe characters that wouldn't hold this, but most of them would, and the Catholic idea of God. Uh, and this is one that Pope Benedict brought out in the Regensburg Addresses that earned him such notoriety. And it's the Catholic view that God's nature is utterly reasonable. 
that God and rationality are coextensive, if it, as it were, and that you can make judgments about what God would or wouldn't do based on the judgments of sound moral reasoning. And that's a thesis that the, the Muslim world has almost never accepted. There are a few, but the majority of Muslim theologians take the view uh, that's called divine command theory, that something is right just in virtue of having been commanded by God, and something is wrong just in virtue of his having forbidden it. So, you know, theoretically God could command adultery or that, you know, we do all kinds of atrocities. And if God commands it just in virtue of having commanded it, it has to be true. And that's not the way Catholics think about God or his relationship to the moral law. We, we think the moral law is something that you can reasonably discern and that it reflects eternal truths about God's nature. And so if someone comes to you and demands a moral absurdity in the name of God, you can dismiss it just on the grounds of it being a moral absurdity. And if they bring chapter and verse in support of it, you can say, well, you're misreading those texts, right? That, that can't be what they mean, because it would implicate God and injustice. That's not a way of operating that a Muslim would ever con, con, uh, concede. How's that, Thomas? Uh, that's 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 pretty good. I, I agree with you too. Like I, 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 regardless of what that says, the church says. I kind of I see it as two different gods. So I I, I agree with that. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank You're you. Very good. And if we've learned anything here today, don't drink Kool Aid with Dr. David Anders. Eight three three two eight eight EWTN is our toll free number. Next up is Mary Jo, a first time caller in Butler, Kentucky, listening on Sacred Heart Radio. Mary Jo, you are on with. Dr. David Anders. Hello. Thanks for taking my call. Um, so I'm doing Bible in a year, and I really love it. I'm Catholic, and uh, but the more I read, the more confused I get about the Old Testament. And um, so it sounds like God spoke to, you know, Moses, and he spoke to or had a conversation basically with David, um, you know, and I don't understand why that doesn't happen today if God was, you know, basically physically talking to people. Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So, a lot of things to say here, a lot of things to say. Um, one of them is that many instances in the Old Testament when God is depicted as speaking, especially to David, especially to David, um, there it's actually a reference to um, the use of the Urim and the Thummim, Especially if, if you see the priests of the Old Testament put, or prophets, put a, a yes-no question to God. You know, should we go left and attack the Amalekites, or go right and attack the Amalekites? And we'll read, you know, God said, go right, right? Uh, many times they were actually casting lots. Uh, the high priest carried with him a device, we don't really know what it consisted in, it might have been two stones, called the Urim and the Thummim, that they would use to discern the will of God. And uh, that method of communing or seeking to know the will of God through through casting lots continued up until um, the choosing of, uh, of Matthias to replace Judas. And you'll notice that's the last time in Scripture that somebody consults lots to determine the will of God. They cast lots, the lot falls to Matthias, they add him to the number of the apostles, then the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost. And from that moment on, nobody in, in Christian history thinks to consult lots in order to discern the will of God. And God makes his will known uh, through divine revelation, through the scriptures, through the teaching of the church, which is guided by the Holy Spirit, and by the illuminated conscience. 
And so it's a different, it's not, it's not direct verbal communication, but it's clear divine guidance, right, that takes a different form. But still, at least sometimes in the Old Testament, you do have actual instances of, you know, thus saith the Lord, and I heard a still small voice, and somebody whispered in my ear, Samuel, Samuel, get up. I mean, you get that kind of stuff, too. Question, does God ever do that today? Well, if you read the lives of the saints, you would conclude that he does. But when you read it in the Old Testament, it's also evident, I think, that it wasn't commonplace. And so the fact that we find many instances of that in the Old Testament just means those were the standout cases that made it into the narratives. But those individuals are regarded by their contemporaries as odd or unusual or gifted or blessed. And the same thing happens today. You know, if, if God uh, gives some sort of private revelation, some sort of direct revelation to a soul, and of course the lives of the saints are filled with that kind of thing, um, it's not an everyday occurrence. It's kind of a rare thing. But the Church would clearly teach, yeah, it still happens. Here's, here's the takeaway, I think, that I would make. Um, you shouldn't count on that as part of your daily spirituality. They didn't count it in the Old Testament, right? It, it, wasn't, it wasn't an everyday occurrence that your average Israelite could expect to hear the voice of God speaking in his ear. He relied on the guidance of the priests. He relied on divine revelation. He relied, relied on the traditions of Israel. Um, and it was the rare occurrence when somebody would hear directly from God. And even the prophets themselves... Scripture tells us, did not hear from God face to face. It was only Moses that did that. In the same way, these private revelations are rare today, um, and that's not the normal mode of our spirituality. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. If you enjoy EWTN's bookmark brief with Duck Keck, you can actually receive weekly emails, including that short little video blog. It features an author giving a short synopsis of their work in his or her own words. Simply visit EWTN.com and click on subscribe. Edna Marie is in Houma, Louisiana, listening on Catholic Community Radio. Edna Marie, you're on with Dr. David Anders. Hello, Dr. Anders. I appreciate the call taker taking my call. I have a question that makes my Children think it's just in my head, and I imagined it. But I do not eat meat on Friday. I never have. I think it was in the early 60s when we we were allowed to eat meat on Friday without pain of sin. So my husband deceased for 30 years, and I decided that we would just not do anything but keep keep not eating meat on Friday. We live where there's abundant seafood. It's not much of a sacrifice. But my oldest son, who brought me a pasta dish a couple of weeks ago, I had eye surgery, a cornea surgery. And Frank came. He's about 50 miles away. And he came to bring this pasta salad with meat in it. But I ate it, and I mentioned that I would have to do an additional penis because I ate the meat on Friday. He said, no, Mom, that's only in your head. You don't have to do anything different or extra if you eat meat on Friday. If you don't eat, yeah, if you eat meat on Friday. So this is my question. Is there anything such as if we do eat meat on Friday, we do something additional to make up for the penance we're not doing? Um, Thank you so much. I really appreciate the question. You are correct, and your son is wrong. The Church does not require us to abstain from meat on Friday, but it does require of us some penance. Outside of Lent. 
Oh, right, outside of Lent. Outside of Lent. does require it during Lent. Outside of Lent, we don't have to abstain from meat. But if we do eat meat, we should perform some penance. And so your desire to perform a penance after having eaten meat on Friday is the right and just attitude. Good job out of you, Edna Marie. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Les is in Cincinnati, Ohio, listening on Sacred Heart Radio. Les, you're on with Dr. Anders. Hi, thank you for taking my call. Um, I've got a very nice brother-in-law. He's actually European. And he told me that he uh, now believes in deism. And he points to some of the very intelligent founding fathers of America to substantiate that and how they were smart and learned. And I think it was there might have been a reaction against uh, against Protestantism in early America, uh, you know, and so these deists, you know, they were they respected science and such. But I guess my question is, is what's wrong with theism and how does it conflict with the uh, Catholic Church? Uh, and what can I what can I tell him? Sure, somebody- sure. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the question. So deism was a philosophical flash in the pan. It didn't last very long. It's it's not ancient. It's not modern. It, it really only had its heyday during the early days of the Enlightenment because it spoke to the mood of the day, which was a desire to embrace what seemed to be uh, the mechanical laws of science while allowing some role for the divinity. And so God was posited as a kind of architect, a designer, who, um, who sort of orchestrated the, the, the mechanistic, uh, the machine of reality that would run on its own steam, and, uh, and then he would sit back and you know, wind up the clock and, and watch it go. Uh, and that fit well with the scientific spirit of the age, or seemed to. And and if you actually study the the origins of the scientific revolution, there were some philosophical moves in late antiquity, uh, where a sort of new model of divine uh, uh, human and divine physical interaction was emerging that that facilitated that. I won't go into the details; it'd be a bit pedantic. Um, but one where you know God would be sort of removed from creation. Uh, but on the Christian side, still be able to intervene. Well, what the deists did is they took that picture of a sort of removed God, and they just removed the intervention. So he sets the whole thing up, and then he walks away from it. Um, now, the pro- there are several problems with this, philosophically and religiously. Um, philosophically, if you think about it, God's not really God in a deistic universe, because the, the universe now contains uh, at least two kinds of things. It contains you know, God over here and the universe over there, uh, in a way that's where they're kind of radically discontinuous one from another. And the universe can kind of run on its own steam once God sets it up. Well, if that's the case, if God can set up the universe and step back and let it run, well, then what's sustaining the mechanism? And to, 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 to take the, the, this metaphor of a mechanism or an analogy further, if you and I build a machine, you build a mechanism, and you, get, you set it up and let it run— it's not really running entirely on its own steam. It depends on many other subsidiary causes. Say, for example, the laws of physics and chemistry, right? I mean, those are, those are necessary for the thing to continue. Um, the, the metaphysics of time, even, all, all kinds of conditions that are required for a mechanism to run. And so if God is setting up the world like a mechanism and stepping back from it, then, then what's undergirding the integrity of the system, Right, if it can't, if it's not God directly, um, and so it would suggest that God and the universe exist as similar kinds of things, separated from one another, 
But in a larger frame, a metaphysical frame of reference, where there's something beyond God, some sort of system of cause and effect, uh, of time, of temporality, of, uh, of mechanical efficacy, you have it, uh, that, the, that the universe is somehow connected to over and above the person of God. So it actually really makes God into almost like a gigantic human um, and changes our understanding of the nature of God. Now, the classical argument for the existence of God, uh, held by pagans and Christians alike, views a, 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 a divine uh, interaction with the world that's far more intimate. And uh, the term that was often used, especially in Neoplatonism, would be emanation. St. Thomas uses this phrase a few times. Um, it'd be more like the relationship of the sun to its rays. Now, that's just an analogy, and there are obvious problems with it, but it's, it's one where God's involvement with the ongoing existence of the world is much more intimate, and where the world's dependence upon God is far more direct, um, that God is undergirding the very act of being. In fact, Thomas Aquinas would say that God is the very act of being, God is uh, is subsistent being itself. God, or uh, Dionysius the Areopagite, would say that God is the being that beings have. Right? If you can parse that uh, sentence down a little bit and think about it, reflect on it. So, so you can still have a God that's philosophically remote and and difficult to know and and mysterious, uh, but one who's really God, who really is at the the headwaters of all of reality, one that's the first principle for everything else in existence. You can still have a distinction between God and creatures, not the kind of radical dichotomy posited by deism. Now, from a religious point of view, um, well, deism would, uh, would eviscerate the doctrines of the Christian faith, whereby God is very consciously, deliberately, and lovingly engaged with the process of human, his, of human history. On behalf of our host, Dr. David Anders, our producer, Charles Beery, call screener Matt Gubensky, and our social media maven, Mr. Jeff Burson. I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Call to Communion. We do it every single day, Monday through Friday, 2 p.m. Eastern Time, right here on EWTN Radio. Until we get together tomorrow, God bless. <laughs>